Well, you guys go ahead and take a seat. Happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you got some rest. Um, last night was like one of those dream moments for me. I mean, all the good guys won yesterday. So it's the one week of the year that there's no controversy around here. However, last night, my, my two little girls wanted to stay up late, and they know, they sucker me, right? So one of them walks upstairs, and she puts on her, her blue shirt. I'm not going to name what team that is, but they were playing last night, and she comes downstairs, and she says, Daddy, can I stay up late and watch this game with you? And both of my girls fell asleep on my lap watching the good guys play last night, and it was an incredible night. So I hope your Labor Day was as good as mine, and I hope today, in all seriousness, is restful for you. So if you have a Bible, grab that. Meet me over in James chapter 1. We're going through the book of James throughout the entire fall. If you didn't, or if you're new here, we, we give out these James journals that we'd love to resource you with, that one of our pastors, um, Clayton, walking around, could get you one. If you just raise your hand, we'd love to give that to you. But James chapter 1, we come to the end of this chapter, and most scholars will tell you that this is the central point in the entire book of James, that what we are going to talk about tonight is the most important or the central theme for the entire book. So what I want to do is I want to read this section in its entirety before we jump in today. So we're going to be in verse 19, if you have that. Look at it with me, it'll be on the screens here, but it says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being, not, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks his religion, I'm sorry, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from this world. In 1883, there was a guy named Horace Wilcox. He lived in the Midwest and he decided that he wanted to move his family out west to create a church planting movement. He was so passionate about this that he began buying pieces of land outside of L.A. and giving away these parcels of land to different owners that would create a movement where churches could come and be revitalized, refreshed, and sent back out. He, he got his wife together one day in this passionate moment, and he said, I want you to name this estate. I want you to name it because I want this to be a legacy for God's kingdom. Well, she named this estate after her favorite Midwestern estate called Hollywood, the place that you and I know as the epicenter of culture and vulgarity, if you will, started off as a place that was meant to be church planting movements for transformation. Hollywood was known originally to be this epicenter for church progress. But like many things, like Hollywood, so many of us start off with the best of intentions and we, we tend to slide away from that because over time we subtly 
We, we, we make changes due to our lack of intentionality. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Like social media, right? Social media was a place that your grandparents thought that they were just getting on there to look at pictures of their grandbabies, right? That's what my grandparents say. I just got Facebook because I needed to see pictures because you never call me. There's some conviction in that. And yet, social media has become so much more than that. It's become a place where we hide behind screens and we throw grenades at people. It's a place where we are quick to insert our opinions and burn people down with 160 characters of information. Things like the church started off as places where people found refuge. And over time, it has subtly shifted to a place of status and obligation. Right? We have slowly drifted from being known for loving our community to being politically div- divisive and taking a stand on everything but the Bible. Y'all, the truth is, is these shifts are easy to make. It's a drift away from the gospel and towards self-righteousness that does all of these things. And when it's not checked, it becomes dividers that end up destroying us. As we unpack what James is going to say today, I really want you to dial in because it might be one of the most important messages that we have to get right. Listen, Satan's greatest threat on the church is not out there. I say this to you all the time. It's not culture. You you realize that, right? It's not the liberal Democrats, right, that, that set policies that conservative Christians can't agree with. Listen, the church has been under threat since the beginning of time, and it has always thrived whenever culture has drifted away. It's not the red hat wearing conservatives that give a bad name that we tend to put on Christianity. I hope you see, I'm trying to be an equal opportunist here. Like I'm not taking a stand either way, but what you need to understand is the church is not at its greatest threat whenever culture or politics makes a stand. The greatest threat to the church is in here. It's... It's like, and I, I don't want to throw out names here, so let me just throw out just a random name, like some dude named Donald that gets on Twitter and starts throwing out aggressive tweets on everybody, and we pin it on people. Or, or it's Jane that goes to the tennis match, and she decides to start gossiping on the family down the street. Y'all, it's all of us not giving the benefit of the doubt or assuming the best of each other. It's being quick to come to conclusions about what we think about somebody else, and it's being slow to forgive even when we're wronged. Like, did you know that Jesus was the very first person in human history to make the statement that we should love our enemies? Well, why did he do that? Number one, it's not natural. It's not natural to love your enemies. And he did that because God's people are supposed to be different. The most attractive thing we have is our differences. See, Rodney Stark, the great Um, church historian, I love the way he said it, the greatest evangelistic tool that the early church had is that they had no evangelistic tool. They simply loved each other, they loved the people around them, and they served people. That in the midst of the most explosive growth in all of Christendom, the tool that they had was being known for people who loved well, who forgave each other, who were quick to listen and serve. Peter, in in 1 Peter chapter 2, here's how he said it. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, which simply means non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and I've told you this before, people will speak against you as evildoers. I heard a quote this week uh, from Winston Churchill that basically said, if nobody hates you, you've never led. Any, Any time in your life when you lead, that's going to happen. You may see your, now he says, they they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what Peter's saying. 
even though they don't like you, if you serve them, some people are actually going to come to faith. The greatest evangelistic tool you have is how you act. Uh, write it down. The greatest threat on the church is not out there. It's in here. And, and the most amazing tool that we have to change the world is that we are different. We are kingdom people. We're people that understand amazing grace. We're people that understand undeserved forgiveness and grace by Jesus himself. See, the gospel transforms us into a new kind of person, someone who's not easily offended, someone who is quick to forgive. The gospel makes the fruit of the Spirit come alive inside of all of us. And the, this fruit of the Spirit that's given to you, by the way, it's a fruit because it's a, the product of God's Spirit inside of you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That stuff is so opposite of what we see every day on social media and in the world. But that's the stuff that makes the world look at you and say, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but they have what I don't have and I want it. That's the stuff that James is talking about. When the church is known for what it's for more than what it's against, that's the stuff that, that lets people look to us and through us to Jesus. And listen, there is enough people. I, I, the, can I just say, there's enough people bashing the church that we don't need to add to it. What we should be is the greatest champions of one another and the greatest champions of the things going on around us. And let me just say this really quickly because I, I, here's what I believe. I believe the church is like an ecosystem that is manifested in all these little local churches all over the place so that all of us can seek the welfare of the city and the whole thing grow. That means we're not in competition with anyone around us. Matter of fact, I want them to be blessed and to grow like crazy and I want to be their greatest champion. I want to be your greatest champion too because here's what we believe around here. You celebrate to replicate. Y'all, it's contagious. When you become a champion of praise and goodness, you become a person or the type of person that people want to be around. And you become a signpost to King Jesus. What if we spent our time being people who celebrated the wins of each other and not so critical? Verse 19. Know this, James says, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The other day I was reading a commencement speech of a guy who uh, did a graduation speech at Princeton, and he began by saying, I understand that my job is to speak and your job is to listen. Let's just pray that we both do our job until the end. Right? The reality is, is listening or being a good listener is really hard. It's hard because we live in a soundbite culture where every 10 seconds or so we have a commercial that is trying to capture our attention again or there's a reel on Instagram that, that goes quickly on to the next thing because every study shows that we have lost our ability to listen. Maybe one of the most important books that's ever been written about our generation is a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was written by a Harvard professor actually in the 1980s. He didn't even realize just how prophetic he was. And here's what he says. He says, every generation over the last couple hundred years has actually gotten a smaller attention span because we started off as an oral tradition culture to where we had to learn to retain information. And then we moved into a written tradition culture and now into a visual tradition culture. And I would even argue now we're in a soundbite tradition culture. Just give me the cliff notes. Give me the tweet. All that makes it to where the cards are stacked against us when it comes to being good listeners. But isn't there something powerful 
when somebody just listens to you? Don't you just feel heard or seen when somebody takes the time to train themselves to seek to understand you? Do you know what it takes to be a good listener? Watch this. In order to be a good listener, what you have to do is you have to decide that you're going to take interest in the other person. Now, I use that word decide on purpose because you might not naturally be interested in that person or their thoughts, but you make the conscious decision to be interested in them, to see them as human. See, the next time you want to blast somebody on social media, let me just challenge you to do this. Imagine that you're speaking to them face to face and their kids are sitting next to them and then ask yourself if you'd say that same thing. The reason why we do that is because when we hide behind a screen, we dehumanize people. We, we choose not to see them the way that God sees them. We, we reduce them down to a bunch of platitudes that we don't agree with. Listen, you are so much more than the things that we don't agree with. You are people of God, and God expects us to do better. So beloved, be quick to hear. Not quick to give an answer. Again, I need to hear that because that is my, my wife wants to talk to me. I'm on to fix it mode, right? Not quick to give an answer or an excuse or a solution, but be ready to hear. By the way, that phrase, I tell you this all the time, that phrase is in the present active tense, which means this. It's not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing that you have to work at over and over and over again. Listening is not an easy skill. It's something that has to be practiced and cultivated. I love the way that the ancient Stoic philosopher Zeno said it. You have two ears and one mouth. Therefore, you should listen twice as much as you speak. My favorite proverb of all time. My life quote. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Y'all, if I could just remember this half the time, I'd be in good shape. What if we were people that were known for being good listeners? What if we were people who were quick to listen and slow to speak? Now, now hear me, because I think that there's a balance here, right? There are times when it's important to speak. I, I think sometimes our silence is deafening. And yet, I don't think that we're in danger of the pendulum swinging too far that way, right? We, we, we speak too much often. And here's my question that I ask myself all the time. Maybe it'd be good for you. Why do I feel like I have to be the representative for all of Christianity right now when I'm at my keyboard? Why do I feel like I have to prove myself? See, James is about, he's about to talk about controlling our tongues, but let me just say this really quickly. You can't control what goes into your ears, but you can control what comes out of your mouth. And there is something absolutely powerful about self-control and restraint. It is one of the greatest tools on the planet Restraint can change the world. We've all seen, we've all seen the destruction of people that just don't know how to keep their mouths shut, haven't we? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words shall never hurt me. The dumbest song ever. Because words are a weapon that cuts so deeply that they can hurt you terribly. Way worse than anything physical that you could do to somebody. See, what if we were known for being people that were quick to listen? Not quick to give our opinion, not quick to say something, not quick to hurt or cut people. Here's what would happen. I think people would respect us a whole lot more. We've got to stop being slow to listen and quick to speak. And again, I just tell you, I am the pot calling the kettle black here. Okay, this is a life lesson for me that I'm continually trying to learn because my natural tendency is to always give an answer. It's always to give an excuse. 
But here's the deal. You will never, ever, ever, ever have to ask for forgiveness for something you didn't say. Right? Now this. Let every person be slow to anger. Friends, life's too short to be angry all the time. Look, I spent most of my life, most of my early adult life being angry. Just, I was angry. I was angry that I didn't have the family that other people had growing up. Just be honest with you. I was angry and I wondered why I didn't have a dad who loved me. You know, I was, I was angry looking at other people's dads who were awesome and loving. And instead of celebrating their wins, I always wondered, why couldn't I have that? I, I, was, I was angry whenever I didn't get the football scholarship to the, the school I wanted to go to. And it ruined the relationship with the guy that I knew that did get it. Like, I was angry whenever I got hurt. I ended up playing college football and had a career-ending injury. And it was, it was bitter and it was hurtful. Listen. If there's any expert on anger, it's me. But I'm just telling you, do you know who it hurt the worst? Me. That's who it hurt the worst. It it hurt my marriage whenever I didn't know how to control my anger at at the first parts of our marriage, so I projected my hurt onto the people around me. It it hurt me and it hurt my relationships as I built a wall between you and I that was superficial because I never let anybody in because, honestly, I didn't know who the real me was, so I just faked it until I made it. I spent years trying to impress the people around me, but I wasn't impressing them with me. I was impressing them with a fake me, and I was just a hollow shell. And here's what I came to realize. My anger, my anger was because I didn't see the love of God in all of it. Let me just, let me recap some of that. I didn't see that I had a good father who was a better father than the earthly one that I had that loved me and cared deeply about me. I didn't realize that honestly, if I would have went to the University of Florida where I wanted to go instead of the other school that I did go to, I would have probably accomplished everything that I ever would have, and I'd have been an arrogant jerk that didn't fall in love with Jesus. I didn't realize that my career-ending injury that I had that made me transfer schools was exactly what I needed because that's where I fell in love with Jesus, and I fell in love with the woman of my dreams, and I have four amazing kids and a great wife. Y'all, God was involved in all of it, and yet the tool that I used for isolation was my anger, and it hurt me. But let me just talk quickly about anger. Anger isn't always bad. Anger is actually an emotion given from God. Do you know what anger reveals? Anger reveals what you love the most. The question you have to ask yourself, the one that I've had to ask myself is, why do I love that so much? Why am I so angry about that? You see, there are good things to be angry about. Like, you should be angry about the cancer that is killing your family. You you should be angry about the injustices that we see happening in this world, that that there is inequality and that people that don't have what I have don't have it. That should make you angry and upset. But the reality is, for most of us, our anger isn't righteous anger. Our anger is selfish anger rooted in the fact that we didn't get what we wanted and we didn't trust that God would be the avenger of whatever we have. All it does is reveal the deep brokenness that we have inside of us. And when that happens, it creates bitterness. Watch watch what he says next in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Y'all, you have to deal with your anger. It will destroy you. This unrighteous anger will produce bitterness in you that will eventually fester till the point that it kills you. One of the most amazing stories I've ever heard of somebody dealing with anger 
comes from a guy named Dr. John Perkins. Dr. John Perkins was one of the, the champions of the civil rights movement, and he wrote this in a book that he was interviewed on after he had been beaten almost to death in Brandon, Mississippi, and then put in jail after a peaceful protest. I thought it was so good that I just want to read it to you. So listen for just a second. John said, after Brandon, I couldn't look at a white highway patrolman, but when I was in the hospital, I was operated, by, I was operated on by a white man. And a young doctor from Australia would come to my bed at night and he would read to me. I didn't care that he came or not. But as I healed, I began to feel the depths of his love for me. It took those white people to live out a faith that I could believe. It affected me. I felt that they loved me and they had hope in me beyond myself. I think we're healed by the interactions of each other, by seeing love in the other person. Once a white man said to me, Tell me what you and your family need and add the cost of gas, and every two weeks I will send you a check so that you can go on doing your ministry. At this point in the book, John's in tears, and then he says, he was a southern white man, and I was getting involved in all kinds of civil rights work to overthrow his system. Reconciliation can't take place until we believe that we are all created in the image of God and have absolute value and worth. We have to forgive each other. Y'all, if anybody had any right to be angry, it was John Perkins. It was our African-American brothers and sisters who, who lived and were treated so poorly during this time. And here's my question for you in your anger. Because, because it's the same one that I have to ask myself when I'm triggered or whenever I'm so emotional that I have to respond. Here it is. Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? It's easy to make a point. It's really, really hard to make a difference. Last thing Perkins said is this, listen to this, I saw the evil that defiled human beings. Evil power had destroyed them. While there is no question that I was being abused and dehumanized, I saw men who had been abused and dehumanized by evil, but I couldn't hate them back. When I saw what hate had done to them, I couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I didn't want hate to do to me what it had already done to those men, so I prayed, God, if you will let me get out of jail alive, I will preach the gospel that will heal these people too. Do you want to make a point? Or do you want to make a difference? I'll just tell you, men like that are the strongest, most powerful men who have ever lived because they resisted hate to make a difference. So here's the deal. If we live angry lives, we will become angry people and then anger will have us, right? We'll become the thing we hate the most. That's what he says. I couldn't hate them because I saw what hate had done to them. Now here's the solution, verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's the same exact thing I told you last week. We don't run from things. We actually need to run to things if we want things to change. Listen, Faith really does work when we put it into action. When you decide to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with humility God's word, it saves your soul. It changes you. Notice the first part is what you do. Notice that. James says, hey, you put away the rampant wickedness. You put away the filthiness. The second part is what God does. He gives you his word that can save your soul. All you have to do, it goes all the way back to the central theme of listen. You have to hear it. You have to receive it. By the way, that's, what, that's why listening is so important. 
Listening is actually what changes you. It positions you in a place that you're not giving, but you're receiving. See, this is super important. When you discipline yourself to be slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger, something begins to grow inside of us that leads to life. I'm just telling you. Bitterness, the lack of listening, is the road to isolation that leads to all this filthiness. Uh, it, it leads to this death here. This is, this is what he's talking about. When, when he talks about filthiness and rampant wickedness, listen to what he's, he's making the connection here to our lack of listening is actually what leads down a path that goes to all these things. And, and this is how it always starts. Most of our filthiness doesn't start with this big monumental thing. It's little things. That stack up, right? How many of you know this? If you're married, you know this. Most of your arguments have nothing to do with the thing that happened. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. As a matter of fact, half the time, I don't even know why I'm mad. I just know I'm mad because there was like 17 things that I took for granted, and then they build up and build up and build up. That's what happens when we don't listen, when we always have an answer, when we hate, and we're always angry. These little things build up and build up and build up, and then they pile onto this filthiness and rampant wickedness. And yet, the way that we change is we receive with humility God's word. James is saying that we have to put that stuff away. So how do you do it? Again, it's this next phrase. I put it there. You receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. There's something humbling about recognizing that you need something, isn't there? It puts yourself in a position to receive, but here's the catch. If you want to receive the implanted word that will come alive inside of your soul again, you have to be quick to listen. That's where it starts, y'all. It starts by creating space to listen to God. Like even in our prayers. Is your prayer all you talking or do you ever take time to meditate and listen? Do you receive God's word? Do you let God speak to you? See, the more you cultivate, the more you meditate, the more you receive, the more you're changed. Because that's what the gospel does. When the gospel is received, it changes us from the inside out, and that's exactly what James says next. Here it is, verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. All right, let's talk about that real quick, because this is one of the most controversial passages in all the Bible. This is the passage that Martin Luther looked at and says, man, I think this is works righteousness. Let me just get one thing straight right, real quick. We are saved by faith alone. But faith is never left alone. That's what you're going to see throughout the entire book of James. It is all by Jesus' grace through faith alone that saves you. It's what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. But it's never left alone. Saving faith always results in a changed life. That's what James is getting after. It's impossible to come face to face with something as massive as the gospel and not be changed by it. Y'all, one of the worst things that has happened in Western Christianity is this idea that we're so afraid of works righteousness in the Christian life that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We basically just said, pray a prayer and you'll go and everything's okay. And yet that's not what it says. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
but saving faith always results in a changed life. David Brooks, um, the New York Times columnist, he talks about this idea between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He, he, he says that there's a major difference between the two. And he says resume virtues are what you've accomplished, right? The school you went to, the, the awards you received, the job title you had. Eulogy virtues are the type of person you are. He, he, like, are, you were a good mom, a, a great husband, the things you sacrificed for people, how you helped people. He says the problem is, is when we die, nobody really cares about your resume virtues. Nobody cares that you were the high school MVP or you had a 4.0 GPA. What they do care about is the type of person you were. And yet, the human condition is that all of us seem to live for our resume and we're known for our character. This is what James is getting after. Character is the thing that matters the most. Character is what God, through his word, is forming in us. What James wants you to know is that the fruit of the Spirit is formed in you by the word of God, and it comes out of you. Don't deceive yourselves. When you get God's word, it matters, and God absolutely does care how we live. He cares about the type of person you are. Remember last week? talked about these two competing systems going on in the world. You have, you have the world system that says to embrace your best life, to be a self-made man and do whatever you want. And yet you have God's system that says humble yourselves and serve one another. Go do a word study in the Bible how many times one another comes up, how many times you talk about serving, and tell me that Jesus doesn't care. See, James is saying it all the same but in a different way. Those of us that have the word of God in our life should live out the word of God in this world. Y'all, I love, I, I'm just telling you, I love our country. When it comes to countries, I think it's the best one in the world. I, I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I love it. And yet, I know it's not perfect. I know that the system that we live in is not perfect. And there are times in our lives where, where there's a competition there's between what we say as a culture and what God's word says we should do. And yet, sometimes those are easy and sometimes they're not. I know this is controversial, but let me get real for a second and give you a couple examples. Here's one. Does the government have a role in immigration? Yeah, of course. Does the Bible say that I should care about refugees and, and love my neighbor as myself? Yes. And sometimes there's a conflicting interest when it comes to those two. And I'm just telling you, we should always side on the Bible and how we love people in our, in our lives. Here's another one. Again, controversial, but shouldn't, does the government have a role in caring for the homeless? Honestly, maybe, maybe not. Does the church? Absolutely. We should love and care for the people around us. We should be sacrificial and kind and do everything we can in that world to care for and love the people around us no matter what culture says. And that's where when we, when we look at the two things that are going maybe sometimes parallel, sometimes perpendicular to one another, and we choose to love people like the Bible, no matter what culture says, that's when the world looks at us and says, man, what we're trying to achieve doesn't work. What you guys are doing is changing lives. And I want that. Y'all, sometimes there is a rub. Sometimes there's a rub. But the reality is, is when we care more about Jesus than we do about culture, we always win. And listen, I'll just tell you, I don't care. I don't care where you land politically. I really don't. I don't care because we don't serve the donkey or the elephant. We serve the Lamb of God who was slain, and our kingdom is a better kingdom. And you can, you can be politically on both sides of the spectrum and still serve and worship King Jesus. 
and be in this place. But it's impossible to be a follower of King Jesus and not be changed by him and not let him live through you and change the people around you. It's impossible to look at the word of God and not come away with compassion and love and submission to the will of God. That's what verse 25 is all about. Look at it. It says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Somehow, somehow there is a blessing that is tied to the doing. Somehow. And the reality is, it's because it reveals the heart of God. It's like exercising. Right? The more you look into the perfect law, the more you read the Bible, that's what the perfect law is, and you let the Bible read you, it literally continues to unleash a joy in your life. It's quite amazing, and it's true. The more you serve, the more you worship, the more you give yourself away, the more God fills you with himself and fills you with joy. See, some of us aren't experiencing joy. We're not experiencing the blessings of God because we're waiting to receive. And God's like, if you just do, if you just do, I'm telling you, I will give you so many blessings that you can't even imagine. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever said something kind to someone who wasn't being very nice to you? What ends up happening? It's like pouring cold water on a tense situation, isn't it? Most of the time it diffuses the situation and it brings reconciliation and it brings joy to your life, right? Have you ever given your time to serve somewhere? Oftentimes when you serve, it, it, it does more in you than it does through you. Like, have you ever been to a boy's home or a soup kitchen? Have you, have you ever given yourself to, to something? Doesn't it make you feel good? I remember when Allison and I first got married, we, um, we served at this Habitat for Humanity project in Durham. And uh, if you know anything about me, you know I don't know my way around a hammer. Okay, what I do know is I know my way to a cell phone and most of the time I call Jim and I say, hey Jim, will you come be the man of my house again and fix my problems? But we went and we they gave me a hammer and I started hammering some nails, my thumb a few times and it didn't take too long before they realized that I needed to be more like a government worker and supervised because the house was never going to get built if they gave me any kind of tools. So I sat around and I encouraged, but at the end of it I looked up and I'm like, man, we did something really cool today. Right? We, we built a house. I mean, more you than me, but, you know, I was there. And it felt good because when you serve other people, it feels good. God gives you blessings and joy. How about church? How about church? See, a lot of us are enjoying the fruit of a lot of massive sacrifices. Like I think about Gene, who's in this room somewhere, but Gene moved here from Durham to help start this church. I bet you Jean could tell you that this church has been a huge blessing on her life. Now, now hear me. Was God going to build his church? Yeah, Matthew 16 says that. Of course he was, with or without him. And yet, she wouldn't have experienced the joy of this unless she put her yes on the table and let God put it on the map here in Alpharetta. Sometime, all the time, when we sacrifice and when we serve, God tends to fill us up with joy. See, here's the point. The gospel always translates into action and God's blessings are unleashed through our doing. They don't save us, but they change us, and they change the world around us. Verse 26, again. If anybody thinks his religion, if anybody thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. You notice again, he, he's weaving this theme of our tongue, how we listen, how we speak. In the next chapter, James is going to say that your tongue is one of the smallest instruments in the world and yet is one of the most powerful forces in the world. The tongue can build up or it can tear down. Let me give you a quick practical acronym that can actually help you with this. And I got this from Neely, our kids director, who gave this to every kid and their families. And it's just really good. It's think. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Sometimes, sometimes it's better just to bite our tongue, isn't it? Honestly, if you can't, there might be deeper issues going on. But listen, a lot of people, a lot of us hear the word of God. And here's the problem. We don't obey it and come under its authority. This is what James is talking about. James is saying that that kind of religion is worthless. In America, we call that religion cultural Christianity. It, it, where we hear the Bible, we come to church, we like Jesus, and yet we never submit to anything that he says. Or, or, or what ends up happening is we submit to it when we agree with it, and when we don't, we go with us. See, in the first century, the same thing was happening. They were living with the same exact temptations. They loved a Jesus who healed people. They loved a Jesus who forgave people. What they had a hard time with was a Jesus that made them exercise their faith in hard times, in hard situations. They struggled. They struggled with their trials and the persecutions that they were under. And y'all, James is telling them that God has empowered them and commissioned them to be servants and change agents even in their most difficult situation. He told them to look into the perfect law of God and be changed by it. And then as you're changed by it, to come under its authority and obey it, and that's how you're changed by it. Let me just ask you. I know a lot of you know the word of God. You've heard the word of God. Do you obey it? Do you obey it? Like when there's a rub, and I know they're there, and I can tell you, there are things that the Word of God says that I just, I struggle with. I'm reading through the Old Testament right now, and some of those passages in the book of Joshua and Judges, I struggle hard to understand, God, how and why did you do it this way? And yet, at the end of the day, because of what I know on the character of God, I submit to the things that I don't understand. My question for you is, where that rub comes in, are you willing to obey the authority of God's word, or when that conflict comes in, do you go with you? Who is it? Is it God's word or is it you? See, when you know who Jesus is, when you know who Jesus is, you have to believe him in those different situations, in the middle of it all. Do you trust him to remain under? Remember that word from last week or two weeks ago to remain under, that, that steadfastness, that's where God meets us is when we remain under. Do you trust him to do that? Again, again, the, listen, the world systems will tell you all day long to take care of yourself. But James says that when you give yourself away, even when it's hard, what ends up happening, what ends up happening is the world around you gets changed and God blesses you and changes you in the process. James, James takes the Bible. Notice that word, that mirror, and he says that here's what the Bible's supposed to be in your life. It's supposed to be a mirror back into your life. It's supposed to be something that you look back into to, for confirmation of your transformation. It, it should be something that convicts you 
right? Whenever, you, whenever you're angry and you look down at this word, it should convict you that you have undeserved grace. It, it should be something that reminds you of how much God loves you and how much he sacrificed for you. And the question is, is as I look at this thing, as my mirror back into my life, do I let it change me as I look into it or do I look at it and quickly walk away and forget it? You know what the difference is? Gospel people look at the Bible as a mirror. You know what religious people do? They look at more like a telescope back into you of judgment, right? Where I take God's word and I use it as a weapon to look at you and I say, this is what I'm going to beat you over the head with, with different rules. James says that's not how it works. James says this thing is powerful when you look back into it and let it change you, not forgetting what God has done for you. See, that's what the gospel was always meant to do. The gospel was always meant to change you. It's, it's a mirror, not binoculars, right? It's it's God's love for you. It's God's conviction on you. It's God's word that changes you from the inside out. And yet, the only way that this comes alive in your life is when you submit to it. So here's the deal. Here's the deal that Jesus makes. Jesus makes his life for your absolute surrender. Because I don't know, if it, I don't know a single person in this world that has a problem with Jesus as Savior. They have a problem with Jesus as Lord. But Jesus doesn't make that deal. That it, it's, it's his life for your absolute surrender. That's the only one he gives. See, if God's word hasn't changed you, here's what James is saying. It has not worked. Now write this down because I want to be really clear. Regeneration, if you will, that's when you come to faith, is always followed by transformation, not the opposite way. Some of you struggle with the fact that you wonder, if my life's not changing as fast as I am, am I saved? The reality is what comes first is regeneration. Jesus is salvation. That's the central theme of the Bible, of this book of the Bible. A religion that works is always doing work, and yet it happens first. The gospel transforms your heart, and then it transforms the world around you. Y'all, God's not only concerned with your salvation. That's one of the biggest lies that the world, that, that we've ever heard. He's not only concerned with your salvation. He is concerned with your salvation but he is concerned with building a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You, you realize that you are the change agent for this world. That's why whenever you became a Christian, he didn't just tractor beam you up to heaven. He wants to use you to change the people around you as you selflessly, sacrificially serve. That's what this last statement's all about, and keep yourself unstained from this world. He's like, don't get caught up in this system. Live in the world, but don't live of the world. Be a change agent in the world and you'll be the most valuable person to the people around you. You know that word unstained, it's, it's commonly used for sin in the Bible. Here's what I find fascinating about that. Every mom in this building understands this. The longer you let a stain sit in a shirt, the harder it is to get out, right? This is what he's saying is stain in the world, the, harder, the longer you are in it, the harder it is to get out, but it's not impossible. That's why he says, he says this, he says, keep oneself unstained. He doesn't say make yourself clean. He says keep yourself clean. See, the reality is when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die to forgive you. He died to clean you too, to give you, to wash you, as Isaiah says, as white as snow. The reality is, is that Jesus didn't just take your sin. He took your stain. When he sees you, he sees you as perfect righteousness, completely uncondemned. Let me read this one more time to you and we'll wrap up. If anyone 
thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from this world. James is saying that your religion has to do two things if it's worth anything. You ready? Your religion has to help others and keep you holy. A religion that doesn't help or serve others and doesn't work on your holiness, he says it hasn't worked. It's worthless. See, that's what the gospel does, friends. The gospel changes you. Listen, God doesn't just ask you to live a certain kind of way because he's unfriendly or he demands rules like a drill sergeant. No, Jesus put on flesh. Think about this. The God who created the universe stepped off of his throne in heaven, put on flesh, lived a perfect life in your place, died your death in your place so that he could wash you as white as snow and then raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father so that he can create a space for you and I to be changed. The gospel changes everything. And it doesn't create a scenario where you take advantage. It creates a scenario to where you love and obey. Why? Because like every good father who loves their children, when they serve and love them, they don't want to take advantage of them. I heard a quick story this week about a guy who was super promiscuous. And, and, and a father walked up to him and he says, how do I keep my daughter from being with somebody like you? And you know what the guy said? Love her well. Tell her you love her every day and treat her kindly because the type of ladies that come to me are the type of people that are looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, the same thing is true with your God in heaven. He has loved you. He has sacrificed. He has perfectly obeyed so that you wouldn't have to, so that you wouldn't have to run to another to find what you can only find in him. John Stott, he said it best. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. See, when you get the gospel, that was a free gift that costs you nothing and it costs God everything, it changes you. It changes you. When you realize that you didn't deserve any of this and yet you were so bad that God had to die for you and so loved that he wanted to die for you, it changes everything. When you get the undeserved grace of Jesus, it changes everything. That, that it's only because somebody shared with you and God opened up your heart that you have what you have. A religion that works changes you. It makes you holy. And when you get God's grace, all you can do is give it away. Guys, Jesus has done everything, everything necessary to save you, everything. And the road to joy, the road to growth, the thing that we need is we need to keep with holiness, if you will, like he says, and we need to visit or serve others. Those two things, those two things are the central point of the book of James. Keep with Jesus, give yourself away. As we do those two things, what ends up happening is God's blessings are unleashed like waterfalls that change us and the people around us. If you want to see this world change, it's really that simple. It's so powerful because 
God has unleashed you into this world to be that change agent. Think about that. Think about that. That's why God told, Jesus said that you were more powerful than even if he would have stayed because he resides inside of all of us and he multiplies the impact throughout the entire world. A religion that works is a religion like this. Changes you and changes the people around you as you serve and love one another well. Father, I pray that you would use this word in all of our lives, that we'd be quick to listen, we'd be slow to speak, slow to anger, because we stare into the perfect law, into the word of God, and we let it, we let it read us. We let it change us. And God, that we would serve the people around us like you have served us. Father, would you help us to receive before we give? And then, God, would you help us to give away what you've given to us? In Jesus' name, amen.